I'm Ethan Majok, and welcome to The Point. Hurricane season officially began on Thursday, June 1st, and so we're spending the bulk of this week's episode looking at how you can make sure you're prepared if another round of hurricanes hits Florida as it did last year. We'll also provide the answer to one of your questions for Find Out Florida about the cost of keeping the Rodman Dam and Reservoir, a popular fishing spot in Putnam County. But first, let's take a look back at this year's legislative session in Tallahassee with three of our area legislators. Senator Keith Perry, Representative Chuck Clemens, and Representative Clovis Watson all showed up to Santa Fe College on Wednesday to give their perspective on how the session went. About 100 people attended, with another 200 or so watching online. The evening opened with a question about the budget, which caused Watson to express frustration with the process of this year's session. But once you get to Tallahassee, you uh, really learn how the things work. And they don't work as, um, I would say, as swift as we would like. Uh, This session has been quite interesting, to say the least. Uh, Our budgeting process is at best duplicative. Uh, We've had uh, many issues between the governor and the speaker. Uh, The speaker and the Senate president, I think it has uh, dwarfed all of the issues that we needed to address. Governor Rick Scott received the lawmaker's approved budget earlier that day, and he now has the option to veto some or all of it. Included in this year's budget is a $27 million cut to the state's community college system. Chuck Clemens works at Santa Fe College and has this perspective. 27 point something million dollar overall cut out of the state college budget will have a negligible if no impact on the students at Santa Fe College. Clovis Watson differs slightly. It will be negligible uh, for Santa Fe, but it will affect uh, other institutions. I think uh, if we want to better prepare our young people for uh, the role of leadership, to be good stewards and for the progress of of prosperity and, and enhance their lives, We have to look at other ways to cut the budget, but not uh, in education. A bill that would have protected LGBT individuals from discrimination did not pass. Clemens and Watson spoke personally about those proposed protections. I have members of of my family who um, are in same-sex marriages. Um, uh, you, You love people because you love people. You love people because they're lovable. You love people because that's the right thing to do. I am against discrimination in any form, and I think that we should certainly pass bills in the state of Florida to make sure that we do not discriminate against individuals and make people feel uncomfortable because of who they are. Perry says he did not read the Senate's version of the LGBT bill. Um, There's almost, I think, close to 3,000 bills that get filed every single year uh, in Tallahassee. In the Senate side, with less numbers, we file more bills. You can file six bills of your own on the House. Uh, we can file unlimited. They have to get a, we have to have a sponsor on each. We had 31 bills that we filed uh, that were our own bills. It was hard enough keeping up with the bills that we had. And the only bills that I did were bills that were going to come before a committee that I had to vote on or debate, and then I did that. So I know this has been around for a while. I'm not even sure who the sponsors were uh, of those bills. Um, I think the state has certainly has a role to play in um, um, how we choose to protect individuals and people. Um, and I'll be glad to look at that bill again if it comes back up next year. I, I assume it might, but I had never came before any of the committees that I sat on uh, last year. Perry did support a law that gives public school students the chance to express religious beliefs in their schools. 
It's kind of scary when we look at some of the examples, not just on a religious freedom thing, but a lot of other subject matters where the government now has taken a role to say, we will, not individuals, because you as a group, you can decide whether you like something or not something. You can decide whether you want to discriminate or not discriminate or believe or not believe. But when the government get, has the business of saying, we're going to approve what you say and we're going to uh, take the whatever it is that you have, let's pre-approve, let's look that over and we'll decide whether we think that's acceptable is just a wrong direction. And I hope under, people understand the fundamental issues at stake when we talk about a government-controlled speech. Again, like it or not like it, it's not the government's decision to, to uh, make that decision. The event's moderator then relayed this loaded question from the audience. Do you believe it is fair for women to not have equal pay? Clovis Watson's answer. Uh, as men and, and society, uh, we're so accustomed to um, the pay scale and how we've done things. And women have come into the job market. Uh, uh, women could not vote until the 19th Amendment. Um, women could not own property. They were considered property. And now we're speaking in 2017 as to a woman making the same as a man who does the exact same job. It should not even be a discussion. But I co-sponsored a bill. I have co-sponsored a bill for several years. Uh, I will continue to do it. Again, that is a form of discrimination in my estimation, and we should not do it. And I think we need to make sure whoever works eight hours, male or female, doing the exact same job, should get the exact same pay. Chuck Clemens. Um, I, I didn't know in the job descriptions that when they advertise for XYZ job that uh, if you get it in your man, it's this. If you get it for women, it's this. But what we can do to help right those wrongs is one job posting and one job hiring at a time. And Keith Perry, who owns a roofing business. There's issues that have taken place, and I, I, this is going to sound really sexist, but I believe that in my business, I look at women differently than I do men as far as I think they're better in, in a lot of cases. I, I, I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. I see a lot of guys that don't seem to have the effort put forth. And I don't know if that's a change that's taken place. We don't hire a lot of women in my business being in the construction world. But I've seen, uh, and I've talked to professors, I've talked to classes where I've seen that I had a professor uh, that teaches law and he had a makeup uh, thing because everybody didn't, the majority of the students didn't do well on the test. Only females showed up to do this makeup to get more stuff. And so it, it may, you may see this balance shift pretty quick uh, as we see historically and you see women because I think it shouldn't be based on, on sex. It should be based on someone's ability and how hard they work. Uh, that's how everything should be based. And, and, and if women are going to work harder than men in, in a certain circumstance, they should make more or vice versa. Um, but I do, I do think it's a problem historically that we do have. And I can tell any young ladies out here, I know that also there was a study done that, that ladies don't tend to be as aggressive in asking for more money uh, in the private sector. So as an owner of a business, uh, you know, some people come to me and you've got 100 employees and, and we're not as, as, uh, as good, as efficient as some of the large companies on how we do evaluations. So a lot of it is subjective in our evaluations. So we had a lady that, that never asked for a raise. She may never get one. If we had a guy that asked for a raise all the time, they may get one. Doesn't always work that way, but I would always encourage never to settle and think that as a lady I'm going to make less or should make less, and, and, and I think that you need to be aggressive 
again, this is in the private sector that I'm dealing with, and I'm not quite sure I'm not in, the, in the, that side, but I think that um, I think you're going to see some changes, uh, and, I, and I would bet in the next 20 years you may see a, a, a shift in that, that, that females make more uh, than men for the same job. An issue of disagreement remains Florida's controversial stand-your-ground law, which has expanded this year to shift the burden of proof from a defendant to the prosecutor. Here's Clemens' explanation. The state must prove that uh, if you're going to be uh, charged with a capital crime like murder, the state must have the compelling evidence. It must not be up to you. Watson is a former police officer, and he doesn't like the original law, nor its expansion. I voted against it. I'm adamantly opposed to stand your ground. Um, uh, this law was enacted in 2005. Uh, before uh, 2005, we did quite well with uh, self-defense. I'm a former law enforcement official. I'm a former law enforcement officer. I do believe in self-defense. Uh, back in the 80s, when I was a police officer in the city of Alachua, we had a, a young man who lived in the city of La Crosse who come to Alachua on a bicycle often, and he could not speak or hear. And we called him Dum Dum. That was just what we did growing up. And he was at this store called Hitchcock's back in the day. Uh, he was a black gentleman. We all knew him. We all loved him. We all revered him. He would help people with their groceries and, and get 50 cents or a quarter. He walked up to this lady who was visiting her family from out of town. She was from Georgia. Uh, he came up to her car and he would say stuff like, uh, 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 because he couldn't talk. She was terrified. She got into her car. She was looking at ways to defend herself. She grabbed the little metal thing. I was the police officer who handled the case. And uh, she didn't know he was harmless. If stand your ground, she was put in fear. She was put in fear with stand your ground. You can take a life putting in fear. But she was not in danger. She didn't know that. I don't think we should take a life because we're putting fear with the perception of fear. There's a difference between fear and the perception of fear. If she, would have had a, if she would have had a gun, he would have died that day. And she would have had to live with knowing that she killed a deaf and dumb person. Now, once she found out, I talked with her, let her know, wonderful lady, and I remember it to this day. This was in the 80s. When she found out who he was and how he was, she gave him a dollar, let him shape her little groceries, because he was really like doing that mm. stuff. But... Under the circumstances of today, he would not have been here. So I think we should have to pause. We should have to pause before we take an individual's life with the perception of fear. It's not the same thing as fear. I understand those who voted differently than me. I respect that. My colleagues are very honorable. We just differ on this particular issue. As for Senator Keith Perry... If you really think about a judicial system, that every criminal activity that you're charged with, it is up to the state to prove you did it, except for stand your ground, where it's up to you to prove you didn't and you had an option. And that's the difference, is the burden of proof moves in the stand your ground case before, it moves to where you have the burden of proof instead of the state. No other criminal charges work that way. And if you think about the poorest citizens in our state that only can afford public defenders, and the richest who can afford the best attorneys, the way it was before is, 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 is in my opinion, is, is for the poor people who cannot afford the best legal counsel uh, is, is pretty bad for them. That's why I supported that. Frustration with the process of lawmaking opened the night, and it closed it. Chuck Clemens was just elected in November, and this was his first session. My dismay is uh, 
I was helping the Department of Financial Services, and Representative Watson was a co-sponsor on this particular bill that would basically do away with a, a program called Surplus Trustees. Without sparing you the details, or I will spare you the details, it passed the House of Representatives 112 to nothing. 112 to nothing. That means that every Democrat and every Republican that was on the floor that day voted for that. It died in the Senate. Representative, I mean, uh, Senator Perry supported it, but it died in the Senate because one particular, one particular individual killed a piece of legislation that had passed unanimously by the other branch of government. I don't know how long I'll be there. I may be there one more year. I may be there more than one more year, but I would like to do some things to stop that sort of political nonsense where if one house where everybody can come together can pass a piece of legislation, it's probably a pretty good piece of legislation. Hurricane season has officially begun, and officials across the state are urging residents to prepare for potential storms now. Reporter Grace King tells us what you can do to stay ahead of the storms. Owning a restaurant on the water was a dream come true for Peter Stephanie. For 26 years, he watched the waves rise and fall just outside his business. Still, the Nebraska native hardly had an idea of what damage the tide could do until Hurricane Hermine hit Cedar Key in early September. There was five or six foot waves in here. And it was pretty, pretty emotional. Stephanie and his wife Gina are co-owners of the Island Room restaurant. Though typically a destination for weddings and fancy dinners, the venue was reduced to structural beams after the storm. Everything else was either gone or ruined. Kind of wiped out all the walls and tore everything apart. Yet even after more than $100,000 in lost revenue, Stephanie says he would not change anything. There's nothing we could do to stop that. There's nothing you could do to stop the water. While Stephanie and others along the coast may not be able to stop the water, officials say there are things they can do to better prepare. Part of that is starting off with an emergency communications family plan. Need to get that, need to get emergency supplies together, and you need to know your evacuation routes. That was Gracia Check, Region 4 Director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. She says everyone needs to prepare for potential hurricanes. Hurricanes don't only infect the coastal counties, they also affect inland counties. Between the rainfall and surge, the, the rivers are high, you get the excess rainfall, and there was unexpected flooding. As FEMA works to get people prepared ahead of large storms, the National Hurricane Center is working on fully implementing a new alert system for when the storms hit. Storm surge specialist Jamie Rome says after two years of trial periods, one new feature is storm surge watches and warnings. Watch would imply that you need to elevate your awareness. Think about what you would do if you were under a warning, meaning you should be thinking, okay, what am I going to do? Am I in an evacuation zone? If I'm asked to evacuate, where would I go? These types of thought processes. And then if you're under a warning, that means you've got a uh, potential for life-threatening conditions and you need to take action to protect yourself. Rome hopes this new update, along with four other changes to hurricane season forecasts, will help save lives during the storms. Still, preparation remains critical. 
I think I think it's important for people to really uh, not wait. And then we practice what we preach. You know, I have to go home and dig out the generator and the shutters and the bolts, and I hate it. Um, but it's very important not to wait. Once you're under a hurricane watch or hurricane warning, you don't have time to do these types of things. So do them now. CEO of Flash.org, Leslie Chapman, agrees. Even if you're not hit by the hurricane, think about this. If you're ready and you get to stay home, you're off the road, you're safe, and you're making way for people that have to get there. So, for example, if you have what you need, you don't need to be rescued. The first responders don't need to come to you, and then they can go take care of people that may not be able to help themselves, like the elderly or people with access and functional needs. This weekend, Florida will forego $4.5 million in sales tax revenue by allowing residents to purchase disaster preparedness items tax-free. Batteries, flashlights, and even portable generators costing $750 or less are on the list of items that will be exempt from Florida's 6% sales tax. Grace King, WUFT News. Dixie, Levy, and Taylor County residents may find themselves paying a different amount for flood insurance after this year. Reporter Chase Dreyer explains how FEMA is making changes after more than 30 years and how this can help after hurricane disasters. Cedar Key faced a lot of damage last year from Hurricane Hermine, and residents are still repairing. It was five or six foot waves in here, kind of wiped out all the walls and tore everything apart and pretty much wrecked our lives. And just water started coming in like very fast. Before you know it, it was probably waist deep on you guys right now. Both our speakers are restaurant owners from the hurricane-swept Gulf Town. They faced the same winds, but the recovery process went differently. Peter Stephanie from the Island Room Restaurant, which sits on the beach, had an advantage. We got, we did well. We got insurance. We're, we're fully covered. Unfortunately, Jordan Keaton's restaurant, 83 West, which sits directly on the water, didn't have that luxury. Our uh, business is actually uh, uninsurable as far as floods go. Uh, usually it's insured by the government, uh, but they told us that we're not able to get insurance through them. Keaton then sought a private insurance company, but the costs were too demanding. $150,000 uh, deductible on that, so I mean, we would have had to pay, and I think it was $100,000 flood insurance too, so I mean, it was it would have been really not worth it. And so that's why we said we would self-insure at that point. Flood insurance can be a dry, boring topic at times, but bearing through the paperwork can have strong results. Well, the insurance is going to pretty much cover all of the rebuilding, we believe. We've had to do some upgrades and change a few things, so we think it's going to cover all of that. But as Keaton says, sometimes the insurance doesn't pull through. You know, uh, you want to be able to get those loans and such. But also I've, I've heard about other people that have had issues where they haven't been able to get the full uh, insurance that they were promised, even the people that were insurable, you know, so it's, it seems like it's going to be a trouble either way. FEMA, the Financial Assistance Government Program, is looking to make the process less trouble. Leroy Marshall, the Chief Professional Engineer at the Suwannee River Water Management District, says FEMA is updating from obsolete flood maps. We actually had a study done of the Ikafina and the Steenhatching river basins and so and along with the, the coastal stuff so there were actually real changes based on computer data how old are the original flood maps though senior professional engineer with the southwest water management district mark fulkerson says almost as old as fema is which was established in 1979 the flood elevations were originally developed in 1984 by fema and so this is the first time that a more detailed analysis is being done to get updated elevations these updates are part of FEMA's nationwide movement to digitalize flood maps.
It's currently focusing on areas in Dixie, Taylor, and Levy counties. It'll take some people out of the flood zone so they won't be paying anymore because they truly are out of that high-risk zone. Or it will, it'll tell them, hey, you need to get the flood insurance. On top of creating an accurate price model, the maps aid home buyers by letting them know just what they're getting themselves into. You don't have residents buying a piece of property and then a hurricane or whatever comes through and they have a bunch of water in their house and they had no idea that the risk was there. During this flood map update period, residents are encouraged to get in contact with their floodplain manager to make sure their land is represented fairly. That appeals period begins for all three counties on June 26 and will be complete by the end of the year. For those who are eligible for insurance, it may make future disasters easier to manage. We're, uh, we're working hard and uh, getting family to help us out, uh, and uh, it's, it's coming along, and hopefully, uh, hopefully by July we're going to have everything open down here. Chase Dreyer, WUFT News. Some of Florida's coastal communities are still recovering from last hurricane season. Reporter Sidney Zaruba recently visited St. Augustine, where dredging and beach renourishment continue, about eight months after Hurricane Matthew brushed the Atlantic coast. As hurricane season approaches, coastal towns in Florida, including St. Augustine, are still recovering from the effects of Hurricane Matthew. Part of this recovery plan is beach replenishment and nourishment with the replacement of sand from dredging in the intercoastal waterways. Neil Shinkra, the public works director of St. Johns County, explains some issues that are being faced in the aftermath. Uh, sand erosion was uh, was a critical element of it, where the hurricane, the winds, the, the, the water washed away all those sand dunes that were there and uh, went through the system. In some areas, it even breached A1A uh, because there were no houses there. He also explained how they worked with the project that was ongoing to minimize the need for dredging in St. Johns County and to work with a more universal benefit. So after the storm, a lot of sand was lost. Uh, we, we lost uh, accounts of about one to one and a half million cubic yards of sand. That's a lot of sand. Uh, these these beaches were critically eroded to start with, and, and with the hurricane, that worsened the situation. Uh, so the, the what the county did is the county tried to maximize its effort uh, while working with the state, while working with the federal government. Uh, we saw working with them to see if they could place that sand of the dredge material that would they would normally place somewhere else to the to the affected beach areas. Greg Caldwell, the Assistant Public Works Director for St. Johns County, said for all of hurricane season, the first priority after a storm hits is clearing off the roads. The first thing that we're always concerned about is making sure the roads are open as to let uh, the first responders get out there. I always call us the, the pre-responders because our road and bridge department, um, our in-house resources are used to make sure the roads are clear so people can get back and forth to hospitals, emergency shelters, or other things. There were also many lessons learned for the ancient city. Debris management sites. That's where we take the debris within the county, stage it up, and then move it again. Those are essential, and we do have some pre-identified locations in St. John's County, um, but that was on paper. That wasn't a plan. We know storms don't follow our plan exactly, so we did find out that more debris management sites are necessary, and we need to make sure that the local community understands where they are, why we're doing it. We have you know, we're a coastal community. We have a lot of environmental people that are worried about the, the wetlands and the estuaries, understanding where the debris is going to be placed and how that impacts not only the environment, but also the citizens. All in all, Shinker was amazed at how well the community worked together, even at times when progress was slow and frustrating. No, uh, it was fascinating to see our community come together 
uh, you know, the county's efforts in these two dredging projects was to uh, to f- to find easements, and easements are something where the the owners of a property give the ro- uh, they're giving their rights so that contractors and somebody else can come to their property to place the sand. Uh, we had um, two weeks, uh, and uh, it's amazing how our uh, land management and real estate staff were to interact with 150. Uh, homes to get these easements, and some of these people were not even getting sand. So, so what strikes me, um, uh, 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 what strikes me the most is the the ability of the community to get together, help each other in in this devastated uh, hurricane did to the county. So, stages of the nourishment plant go from five years to ten years to the next fifty years. Sydney Zaruba, WUFT News. Ground Zero is one of the nicknames for Davis Shores, a community located near St. Augustine's Intracoastal Waterway. It earned that nickname from residents after the devastating damage that came from Hurricane Matthew. Reporter Shamaria Morrison tells us more about how the community has a new perspective on preparing for storms. Located on Anastasia Island, the community of Davis Shores is still in recovery mode, while the rest of Florida gears up for the new Atlantic hurricane season. Construction tapes surrounds homes, portable storage bins line yards, and some homes remain empty. Linda Brandt is a resident of Davis Shores and is still displaced from her home from damages by Hurricane Matthew. I didn't really think that my house would get flooded. I had been told when I bought the home that other people had had water in their homes from time to time, but that house had never had water. Not expecting much damage, Brandt evacuated with her husband to Cedar Key after putting some important items up a few feet. After the storm, she traveled back to a disaster no one could foresee. As I traveled down Old Quarry by the alligator farm and came around the curve and saw people pulling debris out of their homes, pulling furniture and water coming out of people's homes, I literally, my heart went into my stomach. Storm water mixed with sewage reached up to her home about four feet, causing her to rip out floors, cabinets, and lose some of her most prized possessions of arts and writings. A few blocks away, Emily Splain experienced the same type of loss after coming back to her home in Davis Shores. I've been saving some, uh, um, some schoolwork things since fourth grade and they all got ruined. Um, My husband lost his father at a pretty early age and he had a box of his uh, possessions and some memorabilia and that was destroyed and you know things that you just simply cannot replace. Splain says her preparation just wasn't enough. Um, So I didn't prep correctly for what happened during Hurricane Matthew in October. Um, We had a storm surge so water in this case came from the bottom up and so we had about three feet of water from our storm drains. Memories of evacuation, storm damage, and even storm recovery are often far removed from many Floridians' minds. Preparation may seem tedious and even unnecessary, but Splain says she will always prepare for the worst. It may just be some leaves down, or it could be real severe damage. You know, hopefully not, but it's better to be prepared rather than wish you had been. More people in the community look in retrospect on what they should have done better for preparation. Brant says the aftermath of storms is still affecting most. 
There are people still living in tents, in RVs. There's pods everywhere. There's debris in the yards. There's homes without anything in them. Splain just moved back in her home two weeks ago and is still trying to find her footing. The silver lining for her was the response of the community. So a lot of generosity, you know, like I said, people quickly gave my kids Legos and toys and um, really made them feel good and they replaced what they had lost very quickly. As they continue to help their neighbors rebuild from last year, they will also be buying sandbags, tarps, and other disaster preparation items. The community prepares for another storm season as they still try to fix what was lost 10 months ago. Shamaria Morrison, WUFC News. Our Find Out Florida series returns this week with a question from listener Michael McGuire. Michael asked us, what is the cost of maintaining the Rodman Dam? For years, some environmentalists have called for the removal of the dam on the border of Putnam and Marion County, saying it inhibits the Ocklawaha River flow and costs taxpayers as much as a million dollars a year. Reporter Elena Wilson found out that number is not quite accurate. They say it would restore the original flow of the Ocklawaha River and increase wildlife movement. Director of the Silver Springs Alliance, Bob Knight, has studied the controversy for decades. 36 years ago, I said that removing the dam would be a very big benefit to the wildlife population. The Rodman Reservoir eventually flows into the St. John's River. Putnam County Commissioner Larry Harvey says the dam shouldn't be removed because, among other benefits, the St. John's River receives filtered water through the reservoir. The benefit of having the reservoir is having us to filtrate the nitrates that, that are going into the St. John's River. But what about the cost of maintaining the dam? Multiple media reports in recent years have included an unattributed fact that it costs a million dollars to maintain each year. When we asked the Florida Department of Environmental Protection for the past 10 years of Rodman Dam budgets, we saw that upkeep has never cost taxpayers more than $200,000 per year. In the most recent fiscal year, the state spent about $140,000. A DEP spokesman told us he has no idea where the million-dollar figure originated. As for the river, the Ocklawaha is a valuable body of water. Lars Anderson owns Adventure Outpost and has guided river tours there for many years. It's probably the oldest river in the Florida Peninsula because it's formed this very unique formation that other rivers don't, but it's formed along an old fault line from earthquake activity millions of years ago. So it's just a much older river. It's really a natural gem of Florida. We took a trip out to the Rodman Reservoir one afternoon to hear from anglers. The reservoir has become a popular area for recreational fishing, and some locals go there often to catch dinner. Fisherman Robert Atkins says he comes out to the dam every chance he gets. If I get, out, if I get a day off from work for some reason, I try to come out here even if it ain't nothing but for a couple hours. This is like my home away from home. While the fishermen will tell you the fishing opportunities are some of the best around, especially for largemouth bass, Anderson says this is not the case anymore. He thinks the fishing quality is about the same as any other Florida lake. Yeah, that's kind of like a holdover of old information, because when they first made that reservoir with all the new features and just the way the nutrients were, it was very good fishing for those first years. But as time has gone by, and it's becoming more just like another big lake. Now it's just basically about average. As for what it would cost to get rid of the dam, there's little agreement on that. Florida Defenders of the Environment wrote two years ago it would be about $7 million, but estimates up to $20 million have appeared elsewhere in media reports. Still, Anderson says 
Once the river is restored, it would pay for itself. Regardless of what that price is, it's a one-time cost. Once it's a free-flowing river, it maintains itself and in a much healthier state because then you've got migratory fish that they used to go up and down the river and would be able to do it again. Manatees would then be able to migrate up and down in bigger numbers. The most recent effort to remove the dam on a bureaucratic technicality appears to have stalled. An attorney named Joseph Little filed an appeal in December known as a petition for rulemaking against the United States Forest Service. It says they are out of compliance with their own rules about keeping the dam past its usefulness as a part of a failed canal project in the 1970s. That appeal is still pending. Jim Gross of the Florida Defenders of the Environment says the dam is unlikely to be removed under the current federal leadership. We're very hopeful that we would have an administration in Washington, D.C. after the last election that would be sympathetic to restoration of the river. Now we're stuck with a situation that is quite different, and I doubt that environmental issues will ever get out of the box in the White House. Elena Wilson, WUFT News. If you're curious about something in your community, visit wuft.org slash findoutflorida and let us know. Thanks for joining us this week for The Point. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell a friend if you like what we're doing. It means a lot. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Friday.